Let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, it's, um, it's good to be here in this place today. It's good to hear a story like Matt's that brings all of us back to the central reality of this world, which is your activity in it as you bring about your redemptive purposes in our life. And Father, I, for one, was moved as I heard Matt talk about the fact of living so many years not walking with you, and yet to have you intervene in such a way that you drew him to yourself. So that song that we just prayed, I hope, Lord, conveys the attitude of our hearts that we want to be drawn close to you even now. God, there's a lot of diversity in this room when it comes to our spirituality, I'm sure. Some of us have been veteran believers for a long time. We're here just to continue to learn and grow and forge ahead. Lord, there might be some of us that are brand new to the faith and we can relate to Matt's story real well. There might be some of us here, Lord, today that uh, have yet to find you through faith in your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, we continue that journey toward you. God, I pray that as we uh, parse out your word today, as we look at a picture that might help us understand your word on a deeper level, this idea of adulthood, I pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see wisdom that can only come from you. And may we go out of here, Lord, not only just a bit changed, but ready for life ahead with some tools that only you could give us. So we thank you for our worship time now. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, I think just about every one of us are familiar with the old phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? A picture is worth a thousand words, especially in our video and visual generation. This is so true. Of course, if you follow much about the art world, you sometimes know that a picture is worth like $11.7 million, right? That's exactly, look up here on the screen, of what one of Andy Warhol's paintings went for at an auction at Christie's a few years ago. Imagine that, $11.7 million for a painting of a Campbell's soup can with the label torn on it from a guy who spent most of his life helping counterculture hippies justify their cause. Now, I got to tell you, folks, when I read that a few years ago, I thought to myself, I'm no art aficionado. I've gone on record saying that, but it's things like this that cause some of us who are not a part of the art world to shake our head a little bit, and maybe even some of you who are into art as well. In fact, when I read this a few years ago, I thought to myself, can you imagine, give me another click here, guys, how many 1965 GTOs 11 million bucks would buy, right? Now, that's art. That's art right there. I mean, boy. No, I'm just having fun with you. Uh, here's the point. A picture really is worth a thousand words. Maybe not $11.7 million, but we all know that a picture can speak volumes to you and me. Especially, I would argue, in the culture that you and I live in today, in which we live in a very visual, digital kind of culture, we've learned to relate or be spoken to through pictures. And so among many other things, that's what this series that we're in right now is all about. We're looking at a group of paintings done by a 19th century artist, give me another click, thanks guys, uh, by the name of Thomas Cole, in which through four landscape scenes, he allegorically depicts the four main seasons of life. 
childhood, youth, adulthood, and old age. And what he is after in these paintings is trying to help us come to grips with what each season in life is really about, especially on a spiritual and relational level. He is bent on getting us to think more deeply about each season of life than we generally might do. He's trying to get us more than just skin deep. And so far, we've looked at childhood, we've looked at youth, and today we come to the third painting in Cole's series, that of adulthood. And to help you, what we've done is we put a very, very nice reproduction of this third painting in your bulletin today. I'd invite you to pull it out right now. And we're going to look at this today. And we're going to bounce off this into the scriptures and try to take home some truths on what God has to say to us about this season of adulthood. And I don't know about you, but when I was first viewing these paintings in the National Gallery a few years back, I did the first one, childhood, and then I got to the second one, youth. And when I got to this third one, I was like, wow. That is adulthood as I'm starting to experience. I thought, what a realistic portrayal of the journey that many of us experience, obviously in varying degrees, when we increasingly go through adulthood. And so as I've spent some time researching and pondering this painting over the last few years, as well as matching it up against what the scriptures say about life as adults, I want to share with you in our time remaining no less than three truths that I believe will help each of us make sense about what this season of life that some of us are smack dab in the middle of is all about. And so the first thing that we need to recognize, though not always fun and easy to swallow, but so incredibly life-preparing is this. Look up here on the screen, and that is that life in a fallen world will never be easy, and get this, we should stop expecting it to be so. Have you learned that yet? That's what Cole's painting teaches us here, that life in a fallen world, especially as you get into adulthood, isn't going to always be easy. And even more importantly for us as Americans today, we should stop expecting it to be easy. Look with me again at Cole's third painting here, and notice what he says in his own words about what he's trying to communicate. He says, storm and cloud and shroud a rugged and dreary landscape. Bare impending precipices rise in the lurid light. The swollen stream rushes furiously down a dark ravine, whirling and foaming in its wild career. So you have this landscape that obviously has drastically changed from the calm, serene scene of childhood, as well as from the bright, optimistic one that we looked at from last week from youth. And it's now a bit more like life as many of us have experienced it, right? Kind of overcast a little bit rocky, complete with waters that flow not just freely but even roughly. And it looks just like things are going to get even worse as this voyager moves down the river. And as you're looking at this new scene, focus even more closely on the boat and the voyager. I've given you a close-up here on my screen, and look at what Cole goes on to say. He says the voyager is now an adult of middle age. The helm of the boat is gone and he looks imploringly toward heaven as if heaven's aid alone could save him from the perils that surround him. I mean, as this voyager moves on this boat that was once filled with spring day flowers and was as untouched as kind of like a new showroom car is now worn from where, right? And the rudder that was the only thing that could steer this doggone thing is now broken off. And so the boat's being carried alone by the stream of providence heading toward even rougher waters. 
And this voyager's no dummy. He sees this. He realizes what is happening and what is right before him. And so he does the only thing that you know to do in adulthood. He hits one knee and with folded hands looks up toward God and says, help. I love how Cole sums it up. He says it is only when experience has taught us the realities of the world that we lift from our eyes the golden veil of early life, that we feel deep and abiding sorrow, and in the picture, the gloomy, eclipse-like tone, the conflicting elements, the trees riven by the tempest are the allegory. Don't you like that? In other words, what we're supposed to get as we look at this picture here is that this is life as adulthood. That there's going to be times when it's overcast and rocky and rough. The rudder's going to break. And the only help we have is from heaven above, from God himself. And as I mentioned in the first message of this series, Cole should know. I mean, he experienced rejection as an artist a lot in his life. He lost a child just a few days before she was born. He had conflict with close friends and relatives. He struggled with spiritual doubt and disillusionment. And on top of all of this, he writes about battling with his own inner dragons of pride and ambition all in his short 47 years of living. I mean, Cole knew something, folks, as a result of his life that he didn't want you and I to miss or even be misled on, even in our highly modern, highly sanitized culture. And that is that life in a fallen world is never going to be easy and that we need to stop expecting it to be so. If you're not convinced yet, I want to show you how the scriptures, the biblical writers have put this over the years. You ready for this? Uh, King David, who had uh, the entire kingdom of Israel at his disposal, Wealth, a powerful army, a strong economy, a loving family most of the time, a lot of vocational success, and even a vibrant faith and spirituality. Even King David says this in Psalm 138, verse 7. He says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you revive me. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you revive me. You know, when most of us read passages like this, tell me if this isn't true, we quickly focus on the you revive me part, right? You revive me, Lord, you revive me. But don't overlook that first part there where he says, though I walk in the midst of trouble. Present tense, hardships, difficulties, friendships that go south, marital problems, job obstacles, our own internal dragons. These are all the things that David dealt with in his life. He's saying, I'm walking in the midst of trouble. Now get this, even in the midst of all the blessings. And then look at how another psalmist would say it in Psalm 88, verse 3. This is even more to the point. He says, for my soul has had enough troubles and my life has drawn near to Sheol. Focus on that last word there, Sheol. It can be translated one of three ways. It can either mean the grave, the underworld, or hell. That's what that word means in the Old Testament and even into the New. I emailed Paul Wagner at the seminary this week just to make sure my research was right. And I said, you know, Paul, help me understand. He's the head of Old Testament at Phoenix Seminary. Help me understand this word. And am I interpreting it right if I see it more as a negative sense here, probably leading more toward hell? And as only Paul could do, he sent me an entire chart on the etymological history of this word Sheol. And he showed me how from, you know, way before this time, all the way up until the book of Revelation, what it transformed into and meant at each successive stage. And sure enough, the psalmist at this stage, probably around 1000 BC, is really referring to Sheol here as somewhere between a nasty death and hell. 
So what he's saying here, and I think many of us can relate, is he's saying, enough already. My life is hell. That's what he's saying. Can you relate to that at times? And then John 16, I like how Jesus put it. He said, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. Again, many Christians, they tend to skip real fast to the take courage, I've overcome the world part, which we should. But a huge part of Jesus' statement here, don't miss this, is to prepare us for reality in a fallen world that is not our home. He gives us a statement to prime us for adulthood by saying, in this world you have and are going to have tribulation. Life is never going to be easy in a fallen world fallen world. I love a humorous story that Lee Eklov tells. Lee is the pastor of the Village Church of Lincolnshire in uh, the Chicago suburb of Lincolnshire, uh, just outside of Chicago there. And, and listen to this story. This is great. He says, Ted, a man from my church had just returned from a business trip and went to get his luggage at the baggage area of Chicago O'Hare Airport. Almost everybody had gotten their luggage, but there was one man older than Ted making his way slowly toward his bags, which were just behind Ted's on the conveyor belt. Ted figured he could beat the older man and grab his bags before they cycled through the canvas flaps into the back room. He says Ted's health condition makes him a little shaky on his feet. As he reached for his bag, he became dizzy, lost his balance, and fell onto the stainless steel snake carrying his bag. So there he was, flat on his back, hanging tightly to the handle of his suitcase over his head and riding the conveyor through the flaps into the darkness beyond. (laughs) Eckloff says that several thoughts were going through Ted's mind. One, I've been wanting to do this for years. (laughs) Two, I could get arrested. And three, now is probably not the time to get off. And so he rolled the belt, still gripping his suitcase, till he and the bag passed through the flaps again into the light. At this point, he looked into the face of an official-looking woman who said, you're not supposed to do that. (laughs) To which he replied, have you ever tried this? And she said, no. And he said, don't. Then he swung his feet to the floor, tightened his grip on the suitcase handle, stood on the edge of the conveyor belt, and walked off. Now, I want you to listen how Eklov makes sense of all of this. I think this is profound. Look up here on the screen. He says, life is like that sometimes, isn't it? Somehow, without ever intending to, you fall on this moving belt, gripping your bag, and now you can't get off. Even though you're not going where you want or where you should, you just can't get off. I think that's what's going on right now for many of us on a financial level, amen? I mean, things are very difficult, obviously, in America right now. And some of us feel like we have fallen onto a conveyor belt going to places where we never thought we should go or could go, and we just can't get off. I mean, folks, life is like that at times. This is a fallen world. This is not our home. It's not always going to be a friendly place. I mean, think about it. Think of all the things that happen to us in a fallen world just by living in it. And I'm talking about normal things that happen to normal people all the time. Think of four categories of things that happen in this fallen world. First, think of natural catastrophes. Natural catastrophes. Hurricanes like Katrina that hit towns every few years like New Orleans. Tsunamis that hit places like the Far East, or as we've already established, bad economies that cycle through, sometimes in extremely nasty ways. 
Or or secondly, how about personal problems that plague well-meaning people? Have you experienced that yet? I I have friends in their 30s and 40s who are battling cancer right now. Just talking to somebody last night about this. Uh, Failed marriages that happen to people who never thought their marriage would go south. Or how about children that rebel in the most godly and stable families? I mean, personal problems plague many normal, well-meaning people. As if this were not enough, how about others who hurt us, right? I mean, forget about just things like terrorism, which are the obvious one, but how about unfair bosses in the marketplace that make our jobs tough, friends who betray us and hurt us, even family members can turn vicious over time. Some of you have experienced that. And then on top of all of this, we have our own mistakes that we have to deal with as well, right? Out-of-control spending that has put some of us in debt that's going to take years to pay off. Or significant relationships that we are chronically alienated from because of our own anger and manipulation. I mean, folks, these are just categories I thought of in about 10 minutes sitting in my home office this week. If you and I were having a cup of coffee at Starbucks or wherever you go today, and I asked you to list some of your own categories, you'd come up with them just like that, wouldn't you? Because you live in the same world that I do. And that's the point, that there's something incredibly preparing, incredibly reality-based, and even freeing about finally recognizing and coming to grips with the fact that in a fallen world, bad things are going to happen at times even to good people, that rough waters are going to hit, the clouds are going to turn gray, and the terrain's going to get difficult. And yet think about it. We spend so much time as Americans today either denying that these things are happening or thinking that they shouldn't be happening or fighting with all of the energy inside ourselves to insulate ourselves from these things that life, now tell me if this isn't true, becomes more of a protective defensive venture than it does a voyage that learns to navigate the rough waters and as we shall see, even become the people that God wants us to through the rough waters. In other words, we just try to get out of the boat. We try to say this isn't happening. We try to deny this or somehow sanitize the whole process. And there just comes a point in life where you just have to begin to expect and even at times accept that life in a fallen world isn't going to be easy. It's what growth and maturity and, quite frankly, character is all about. i got to tell you, this is a critical thing. People have been asking me um, a lot, obviously, with all that's going on in our economy, hey, hey, Jamie, what do you think God's up to? You know, why is he allowing all this bad stuff to happen? And I'm actually going to do a message right after Easter. I decided this week, before we get into the Second Peter series, I put it all off one week. We got margin, and I decided I'm going to do a message right after Easter, hopefully to get some of the Easter crowd back again, called God and the Economy. And so I'm going to help us try to make sense as best I can, biblically speaking, of what's happening with our economy and God and where is he and what's he up to and all that stuff in it. But you know one of the things, the answers that you'd get if you talk to some of the World War II generation Christians that are still around, in fact many of you are in this service here, and so maybe it's our five o'clock service that needs to hear what I'm about to say, but the reality is, is that those who went through like the Great Depression and World War II and then into Korea and some of the other things, realized that that, that life is a very difficult thing. And they never expected it to be an easy thing. And so you look closely, and much of life in the 1950s and the 1960s, and even into the early 70s when we were rebuilding our society and culture, there was not a lot that people took for granted. 
I mean, there was an incredible amount of character back then. There was a lot of substance. There was a lot of grit to what was going on in culture there. There was a lot of maturity among the evangelicals, the Christians at that time, for the simple reason that they knew life was hard, and they were very thankful for the blessings that they had received. And so I wonder sometimes, maybe one of the reasons that God allows us to go through some of the things we're going through right now is to once again cycle through or bring home to us that hardships and difficulties are a staple in a fallen world. I was at a wedding yesterday, and I was moved at this wedding, this young couple, I mean, just in their early 20s, were writing their own vows. And at one point, the husband said to his wife, he said, I will celebrate the good times with you. And then he said this, and I will not run from hardship. I thought, that's rich from a 20-something. I'll celebrate the good times, but I commit to you this day on our marriage day that I will not run from hardship in our lives. Do you know people that run from hardship? I do. It's kind of epidemic today, and yet the reality is, is that life is never going to be easy in a fallen world, and we do great service to our soul by not expecting it to be so. Now, if you're tracking with me at all this morning, you might be thinking at this point, okay, Jamie, so I get the realities of life issue here. Stop harping on it. But if I'm not going to deny it or constantly wish it were so or try like crazy to insulate myself, what do you want me to do with it? I mean, what should my response be to the difficulties of life in a fallen world? And I'm glad that you asked. And though there are many responses that the Bible talks about, I want to share with you two things as we kind of get down to the short strokes here this morning that that the Bible gives us that Cole's painting is going to show us here. One is kind of conceptually how you are supposed to view the world around you. And then the third point here this morning is going to be like practically here's what you can do to deal with life in a fallen world, especially in the season of adulthood. And so here's the second thing, that if if you're not going to see life as some insulated whitewash thing, what do you see it as? Here it is, and that is that there is more going on behind the scenes than we might ever realize or imagine. I'll explain what I mean by this in a minute. But boys, it's going to be instructive for many of us who have fallen into our what-you-see-is-what-you-get materialistic kind of mamby-pamby spiritual approach that we have here in America, that there's more going on behind the scenes than we ever might um, imagine or even realize. Now, now folks, bear with me here. To best set up this point, I want to share with you what I've observed over the years about how most people view the sources of their problems and difficulties. This is going to be important for us. And when you look close, folks, the average American today will chalk up his or her life difficulties into one or a combination of three primary sources. Tell me if this isn't true. And that is others who have made my life a mess, circumstances that I have no control over, or myself who has made wrong choices, right? I mean, this is how the majority of Americans, our culture, explains our problems. Others, circumstances, and or myself, and it's usually in that order, right? I mean, think about your friends that you talk to. Think of the water cooler conversations or, you know, the, the conversations that you have with, at Starbucks with a buddy or, that's twice I've mentioned Starbucks today, isn't it? Anyways, or, 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 or wherever you talk with people. Think about TV shows that you watch, radio shows that you listen to, uh, the latest Hollywood movie you see. The pattern that we pick up is that the source of our problems are others, 
circumstances, or myself, or a combination of these, and it mostly defaults to others and circumstances. And further, on top of this, if there is any kind of spiritual or more subjective thing going on, what our contemporary culture does is chalk this up to fate, right? How many times have we heard that? This unexplained, impersonal, spiritual force that kind of determines how things should go, right? I hear that all the time from people. Well, this is just how the cards dealt it, or it's fate, or this is just how things turned out. That's the the, the depth of spirituality the average 21st century American has in their lives. That's spirituality in our culture today. Now, the reason that this is so important to recognize is that there is a subtle yet significant deviation. This is a subtle yet significant deviation from the way that the Bible portrays the sources of our problems and struggles. In other words, like so many things in culture, our, our culture today has this partly right as far as a biblical worldview because we're living off the vestiges of 1900 years of Christendom and even a a country that was started with many, many Christian foundations and principles, but we've veered significantly from it, so we got it partly right, but not completely right. Let me show you what I mean. Look up here on the screen. Uh, Folks, the Bible does agree that the three principal sources of our problems are self, others, and this world, but notice that the order is different. In other words, the Bible places the greatest culpability for our messes on who? on us, each of us, individually and collectively, and only on the world and our circumstances secondarily. And this isn't to suggest that there aren't any victims in the Bible. There are people like Joseph when he was sold into slavery and Uriah the Hittite when David sent him into battle to get killed. But it's interesting that when you read the Bible in all of its fullness, you will notice that these victims are few and far between. Most of the time, God clearly points out that it's our own choices and behaviors that have created the mess that we're in. And even when there are victims, it's interesting, they almost always still have choices on how to deal with the cards that they have been dealt. In other words, God doesn't let them remain victims too long. And so you have self, others, and this world as the three principal sources of our problems. And then notice with me a twist that the Bible adds that makes all the difference. And that is that these sources are not ever influenced or nudged by fate or anything silly like that. No. All three of these are under the constant influence of a very real, spiritual, and I might add personal, battle. They are. In other words, the Bible doesn't just stop at saying there's something like fate, this nebulous spirituality that's at play in the universe. No, it says there's a personal battle between good and evil vying for every soul and it's work in almost every circumstance that we deal in. In other words, the Bible makes clear that at any given time, whether it has to do with ourselves, others, or the circumstances of this present world, there's a battle going on behind the scenes between a sovereign, almighty, and good God, who, by the way, is ultimately going to win the war, and dark spiritual forces headed up by an evil one that the Bible refers to as the devil or Satan. And don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about this demon under every rock thing or like the old church lady used to say, Satan made me do it. That's not what we're talking about here because the Bible makes clear that the three principal sources of our problem are us, others, and this world. But make no mistake, folks. 
This unseen spiritual battle influences the way things pan out on earth on a daily level. It influences us more so than we would ever know. There's a very personal battle in which we're going to see in just a minute. We have a choice to engage in or not, and it's unseen, and it makes all the difference in the problems that you and I have and that we face. I want you to look with me at how the Bible paints this picture for us because it couldn't be more clear. Look at Ephesians 6, verse 12. This is a very significant passage in the Bible. It says this. It says, for our struggle. Now pause right there before I read on. For our struggle. In other words, the things that plague us in this life, our difficulties, whether it be our work, our marriage, our emotions, our struggle. What does it say? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Pause there again. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, it's not against the things that we see, us and the physical world around us. So what is it about? But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we say, wow, wow. There's much more going on behind the scenes than we might know or even imagine. I mean, add it up, folks. Rulers, powers, forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness. And so not only then is personal evil real, the Bible says, but it's engaged in a battle, an unseen battle behind the scenes with the forces of good and God as well. And the point is, is that every one of us, believer or unbeliever, it doesn't even matter, is somehow engaged in this battle. It's what's really going on in our culture and in our lives. I like how Ronald Roheiser puts it in his book, The Holy Longing, The Search for a Christian Spirituality. Look up here on the screen. He says, spirituality is not something on the fringes, an option for those with a particular bent. None of us has a choice. He says everyone has to have a spirituality, and everyone does have one. Now get this, either a life-giving one or a destructive one. Boy, doesn't that change the way you think about it? I mean, most in our culture today say, are you spiritual, are you not spiritual? No, he's saying everyone's spiritual. Of course you are. You're made in the image of God for crying out loud. You can't help but have a spiritual side to you. It's just that what you choose to do with your spirituality, as we're going to see in a minute, whether you choose to seek God through his son Jesus Christ and engage in things like prayer and faith and the tools that are going to make life worth living, or if you're just going to get caught up in this world that the Bible says, by the way, is already handed over to the evil one and allow the waters to take you that way, that's the choice that you have before you. But make no mistake, everyone's spiritual, Everyone has a spirituality. It's either life-giving, as he says, or destructive. There's an unseen spiritual realm, and it is personal, and there's a battle for our souls going on every day. And behind most, if not every problem you deal with, there's an influence that you cannot always see, that you might not even be aware of, but it's an influence nonetheless calling you toward God or away from him. Actually, this is one of the main things that Cole is trying to communicate in this painting before us here today. You might have missed it at first glance, but once you see this, it's going to blow your mind. I want you to take a look at this painting again, and I'm going to, yeah, thanks, guys. Give me one more click here. Thanks. 
Perfect. Leave it up there right now. So we'll look at the screen in a second here. But right now, just, just so, oh, they already switched. All right, look at the screen right now. Because <laughs> uh, they were going to put it up here huge. When you look at your painting there and then up here on the screen, here's what I want to point out. When you look at the painting as a whole, up in the upper left-hand corner, there's that light coming through, which is obviously the guardian angel there, symbolizing God's presence uh, in our lives. If you don't think the Bible talks about angels, read the book of Hebrews, read a lot of the Old Testament, read the birth narratives of Jesus. I mean, angels are at play, it's for another sermon, but angels are at play in our lives on a regular basis. And so Cole's right when he shows a guardian spirit there still looking over the voyager's life with light shining through in this very dark time in his life. But then skip over to the right where you see those clouds. You all see the clouds there in your picture? And though it's really hard to see on your picture because it's so small and in the National Gallery, these things are like two by four or three by five. I mean, they're very large. What you realize, and if you look close, is that Cole has painted the faces of three demons right in each of the clouds forming there. You can probably see it best on the far right there. You can see a little face there. And, and then the one on the left, and then in the upper one of the circle there, you can see another face shining through there. In other words, what Cole is trying to communicate to you and me in this picture here is that interplay between good and evil, between God's forces and the evil forces that are at play in our lives during this time of adulthood. And so we got to then ask ourselves, what does this mean? And others, okay, Jamie, I get this, but what do I do with this kind of knowledge and understanding of adulthood and the journey we're on? And at the very least, folks, what it does mean, now don't miss this, is that the tools that our culture tells us to engage in adulthood with, and I mean some of the very good tools, I mean things like getting an education to ward off poverty, or 401ks to help protect you in retirement, or strong borders to ensure security, or therapists and self-help books to fix your messed up emotions, or a host of other good things that our culture tells us will make our lives more livable and comfortable in the 21st century are at the very least not the primary tools needed to engage life with, especially when you understand the real battle going on. In other words, don't, don't miss this. If it really is true, if you buy into the fact at all that life at its core is a spiritual and relational entity, not just a material entity, and that on this spiritual relational realm, there's an unseen battle going on behind the scenes all the time. I mean, all of eternity is looking at this battle. Then it only makes sense that the tools that we use to fight or engage this battle aren't going to be the normal things that the world tells us to use, Right? I mean, it kind of puts your 401k and your education and, and all the other things, all the self-help books you read and all that kind of in perspective. doesn't make them bad. It's just that as C.S. Lewis says, they become good second-place things. And then the Bible comes along and tells us that there are other things that transcend these things that we need to fight life with. And I want to wrap up in the few minutes we have remaining with you today by sharing with you two of the key ones. You ready for this? It's your last point. And that is that faith and prayer are the two tools needed to survive life's storms. I'm telling you right now, we are at the summit of the mountain. Faith and prayer, who would have thought, are the two tools that God says are most needed to survive life's storms? 
I mean, that's what this picture is getting at here. The man's kneeling in the boat. He's praying. The rudder is broken. He's got to totally trust the waters of providence. The guardian spirit is still watching over him. Is he going to trust that or not? And I don't know if you noticed, but way off in the distance on this painting is the ocean of eternity that we're going to see in the next scene. And that's what this voyager is hoping to get to. And it's only going to be prayer and faith that get him there. I mean, this whole painting is about faith and prayer, the two tools needed to engage the battle that brews overhead and behind the scenes. And so as we wrap up, let's be really clear, shall we, about what we mean by faith and prayer. Look with me at how the scriptures teach us about this. Look at John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus is talking, okay? We're at the summit. Here's what Jesus says. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Now get this, believe in God, believe also in me. Two things you don't want to miss there. First, he says, believe, believe. That word has become so watered down today, it's it's almost laughable. In the New Testament context, this is the Greek word pistuo. And get this, it literally means to commit, to place total trust in something. It's not a casual word like we use it today, but a word that requires placing one's entire being in action, thoughts, heart, and will. And so a radical commitment is being talked about here when Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. So much so, by the way, if you're not convinced that Jesus would go on to talk about things like this, denying self, taking up your cross, following him, not looking back. In other words, putting this idea of faith first and foremost in your life. Hang on to that. That's what he means by believe. And then secondly, don't miss that this belief or faith has a very clear object. Did you catch it in this passage here? Believe in God, believe also in me, in Jesus Christ. In other words, could Jesus be more clear here? He's not saying to have faith in fate or karma or some nebulous belief that everything's going to work out for the best or even your own personal belief system on who God is. He's not saying to have faith in any of that stuff. He's saying the object of your faith is God as he has revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And boy, is this life-giving, folks. I mean, think about that. Faith and faith in Jesus. We live in a world today in which faith is so in. Have you ever noticed that? Like you go into the marketplace and you say, I'm a person of faith. They're going to stand up and applaud, right? It is so cool to be a person of faith today. You can get away with that in any context. But as soon as you add an object to your faith, like Jesus, that kind of changes everything, right? And yet that's exactly the point. Is that Jesus saying it's not just enough to be a person of faith, but where is your faith? He's saying the only kind of faith that's going to engage in the battle that's brewing, that weathers the storm of life, is a radical, committed, put your hand to the plow and don't look back kind of faith that has as its object a Lord and a Savior, and his name is Jesus. No other faith is going to do, no other object is going to get you through this world and even to the next. Faith is the first tool that he gives us in this battle. And then, one of the most powerful ways to exercise your faith is through prayer. Last scripture, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, it says, Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now get this, Matt testified to this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Whoa. So prayer 
the kind that exercises faith and trust, leads to peace, and can literally build a fortress around your soul in times of need. And again, please realize, I, I almost feel like I'm preaching to a first grade Sunday school class saying this, but, I, but I, I, I rub shoulders so many times with adults throughout the week that I feel compelled to say this on Sunday morning. Do we all understand that in Philippians 4, it's not talking about two-minute prayers driving down the road or prayers before a meal or bedtime prayers that you shoot up right before you fall asleep? I mean, those are good. I do those. If I didn't, all of you would say, I don't think you're a very good pastor. But if that's the sum total of our prayer life, then maybe that's why so many Christians are anemic today, right? I mean, the reality is this is talking about gritty type of prayer. This is talking about long type of prayer. This is talking about those of us who when a church calls an all-church prayer meeting, hint, hint, we are there, right? This is the kind of prayer that gets into a small group, and if we share for an hour, and then the leader says, let's wrap up in prayer for five minutes, we say, no, time out. We just shared our lives. Why don't we pray for a half an hour? And then you say, well, Jamie, that's long and it's boring. Well, then cause yourself to go, whoa, what's wrong with me? I can watch Seinfeld for a half an hour, but I can't pray for a half an hour. I'm not trying to put guilt trip on you guys, but you ought to ask yourselves, what's wrong with me? That I can be entertained by culture for a half an hour, but I can't be in the presence of God, my Father, and His Son, Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit to pray. I mean, I'm with you. There are times I get tired at an elder meeting, and an elder, because elders pray a lot, you know, and then the elders are, are praying, and they're going on and on and on. And, and, and I'll be honest, there's some nights where I'm just going, would you land the plane already, or something like that, right? But when I do that, I'm saying to myself, what's wrong with you, Rasmussen? Come on. I mean, this is prayer. This is engaging in that battle. This is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. And it's only going to be one in the realm of prayer. And so that just inspires me to pray more and more and more. And, and, and I can tell you this, Scottsdale Bible Church will never become the church that God wants her to. I and mean, we're a good church, but we're, we're never going to rise to the level he wants us to if we don't learn to pray as one author said, like Jesus is coming back tomorrow. See, if Jesus come back tomorrow and you guys knew it for sure, you'd be praying today, wouldn't you? You would. So would I. I mean, we'd all be praying more. Oh my gosh, I better, you know, I got a lot of stuff to make up for, right? That's what we'd be thinking. The reality is, so he could come back any time. The reality is the spiritual battle's brewing, and he wants your life to be a life of prayer. Faith and prayer are the two tools that you need. So here's the last question I want to ask you this morning. What's it going to be for you? In other words, are you going to see life realistically for what it is, fallen and hard, or are you going to remain in denial? Secondly, are you going to recognize the battle behind the scenes, or are you just going to continue to stick your head in the sands and listen to culture? And thirdly, what tools are you going to use to get through? Is it going to be prayer and faith, or is it going to be business as usual? Three questions that I hope you answer very much in the positive, that, that this picture teaches us and this word confirms. Why don't you bow with me and pray? Father, I thank you once again for just so many ways that you uh, come into our lives and bring truth to us that we desperately need. And Father, obviously through Jesus 2,000 years ago and through your word that we've had for thousands of years as well, you come into our lives and, and you give us truth that we need that we must have in order to know you and make something purposeful of our lives this side of heaven. 
And Father, I thank you as well that then you take servants like Thomas Cole, whom you entered into his life in the later years of his life, who then draw or paint some beautiful landscape scenes that allegorically bring home to us the truths of your word. Thank you for that. And so, Lord, as we bounced off of these, these things today into our own lives, I, I can only pray that you would help each of us to have a real reality-based view of the world that we live in. May we not be duped into thinking that uh, somehow life is going to be easy in a fallen world that's filled with sin, uh, that, Lord, we would realize that remains till heaven, and that, Father, this side of heaven, there's a battle. And, Lord, help us to realize, too, that that battle is real. We don't see it, so we tend to think it's not real. But, God, uh, maybe help some of us today realize that there really is a battle between good and evil, between truth and non-truth, between you as the sovereign, all-creator, all-knowing God who has revealed himself in Jesus and dark spiritual forces that vie for our attention each moment of each day. And then, Father, I pray most tenderly that you would help Scottsdale Bible Church, these good people here today, to be people of faith and prayer, that faith would be one of total commitment and its object would be Jesus, your Son, and that prayer, Lord, would be something that we don't reserve just for mealtime or bedtime, but something that we learn to engage in each moment of each day and with each other in substantive ways. God, thank you that you love us enough that you show us these things. May we now love you back by doing them. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And all of us say together, amen. God bless you. We'll see you guys next week.